All right, 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. The whole theme of the book of 1 Kings is covenants and character, and we're going to look at both of those things a little bit tonight. When we get here to chapter 3, although David is gone, Solomon heeded his father's advice. He dealt with all the people who could challenge his throne. We saw that in chapter 2, and now no one from David's time remains who could be that challenger. His kingdom is established. And so Solomon begins in chapter 3 moving forward to grow and prosper the kingdom that God gave him. But Solomon knows he can't do that in his current state. He needs supernatural help from the Lord to be the king that he needs to be. And so when God offers Solomon whatever he wants, Solomon wisely asks for a hearing heart. So chapter 3, we begin in verse 1. It says, And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built unto the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. And so what we get here now is kind of, it sets the stage for now this, Solomon kind of really reigning forward beyond all the ties that he still had to his dad and the kingdom that was in existence before this time. And it sets the stage by describing it in two ways. First off, it mentions here that Solomon, very early on in his reign, made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. A phrase made affinity, it means to gain an alliance through marriage. Now, the Bible does not explain to us why either Egypt or Israel would want an alliance with the other. What we do know from history is that this pharaoh was the last pharaoh of the 21st dynasty in Egypt. Uh, that was a kingdom that was so weak, they actually had to move the capital to the city of Tanis because the high priests of Amun at Thebes, they really ruled Egypt during this time. So this is a very weak pharaoh. So it is possible he's trying to strengthen his throne by making foreign alliances didn't work because this pharaoh would soon be conquered by nomadic Libyans who eventually started the 22nd dynasty, and those eventually broke the alliance with Judah and invaded. King Shishank is the one that invades Judah during Solomon's son's reign. So it's a whole different kingdom that's going on there. So whatever the reason the Bible doesn't tell us, we do know this, that this was a start of a very bad practice for King Solomon. This is not a good thing that happened here. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, when God gives commands to Israel's future kings, I think I've been calling it Deuteronomy 18 for the last few weeks, so I apologize for that. But Deuteronomy 17, 17, it says very clearly, neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. That's really clear. He's not supposed, I know that kings do this to make alliances, but when I pick a king for you. I don't want him doing this. What's fascinating is if you look at Deuteronomy 17 and all the commands that God gave to Israel's future kings, hundreds of years before they had a king, Solomon will break every single command. Every single one of those. He broke every single command that God gave to Israel's kings. This is the first one he violates. Now, you say, well, how do you know he's violating? How do you know he's multiplying wives? Well, Solomon reigned for 40 years, but his son, Rehoboam, who became the next king, was 41 years old when he became king, which means that he was born before Solomon was king, 
which means Solomon was married already when he married Pharaoh's daughter. Now, I don't know why Solomon disobeyed the Lord here. I don't know if it was Pharaoh's flattery that stumbled Solomon, or if it was Solomon's ignorance of God's law, or if it was the influence of growing up, the son of a king who had a very large harem. Or maybe it was just his own problem with lust. The Bible doesn't give us any specific indicators why he did this. But whatever the reason was, these political marriages became the thing that brought about Solomon's backsliding later in life. This does bring up a question, though, because just a couple verses later it says, and Solomon loved the Lord. So is it possible to love God and to struggle with sexual sin or unhealthy romantic relationships? Yes, it is possible to genuinely love God and have those struggles. But it is not possible to stay close to the Lord and stay involved in sexual sin or unhealthy relationships. You will pick one or the other. And so if they're still involved, it means you're picking the other. And so you cannot stay close to the Lord and stay involved in sexual sin or unhealthy romantic relationships. If you're involved in sexual sin or an unhealthy romantic relationship tonight, the Bible has one piece of advice. It has a command for you, and it's get out. Get out of it. Paul only had one solution to sexual sin. It was run away from it. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. In the pastoral epistles, he writes to Timothy, he says, flee youthful lusts. That's interesting, that word flee. I remember I heard this first from Pastor Gibb. But the word flee in the Greek is fugo. And you know what it means? Fool go. Get out. Run. Now, it says here that he, when he married her through this alliance, he brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house, his own palace, the house of the Lord, the temple, and the wall of Jerusalem round about. The reason that Solomon then moved her out is because he didn't think it was right for an unbeliever to be that close to the Lord's presence in the temple. And so he eventually built her a palace outside of Jerusalem. But he didn't do it till he had made an end of building his own palace, the temple, and the wall. During this time, Solomon didn't think her living in the city was wrong because there was no temple in Jerusalem. And the truth is, the people didn't worship exclusively anywhere. They didn't exclusively come to the tent that David set up in Jerusalem. They didn't come to the tattered remains of the tabernacle in Gibeon. They went to all sorts of places, which is what verse 2 now describes. It says only, which should be translated meanwhile. In other words, he eventually moved her out because he didn't think it was right for her to be an unbeliever and be close to the presence of the Lord. But meanwhile, he tolerated something else. The people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built unto the name of the Lord until those days. When there was no temple, the Bible says that the people during Solomon's reign sacrificed in high places. What are high places? The word high place, simply you could translate it worship center. Worship centers were called high places in the Bible because they were almost always located on hilltops or mountainsides. This concept was a holdover from paganism, which believed the gods were in the sky, and if you're going to worship them, you want to get as close to the gods as you can get, as possible, when you worship. So they built these worship centers on the top of mountains or hilltops. Part of the reason that Moses spent 40 years up on Mount Sinai was because God refused to let Israel see him as just another god. 
They weren't allowed to worship Him uh, as they deemed best or as they saw fit or as they wanted to. Because me deciding how I want to worship God is not worship. The very nature of the word worship means to bow down, which means it's not about what I want. It's me acquiescing to what He wants. And so God on that mountaintop of Sinai, He instructed Israel how they would worship Him. And it took 40 days to explain it to Moses. First off, they had to come through the tabernacle. What's the tabernacle? Let me show you. And then He gave them all the details of how it was to be built. Not only did they have to come to the tabernacle, but when they came, they had to bring certain offerings a certain way. And so God had to describe all the offerings. And then He told them that you can only offer those offerings at the tabernacle through a mediator, the priests. And then He described what that was. All of those things, the tabernacle, the offerings, and the priests, they all painted a picture of Christ and the cross. It communicated what Jesus later said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. God decides how we come to Him, not us. The problem in Israel at this point in time is that ever since the Philistines ransacked the tabernacle and took the Ark of the Covenant back home with them, when the ark was returned, it was kept separate from the parts of the tabernacle that survived the Philistine attack. And so without the ark's presence and being in disrepair, many in Israel stopped using the tabernacle for worship. Now, David changed all this. He transported the ark to a new tabernacle he constructed at Jerusalem, and he encouraged the people to worship there. But the writer points out here, Solomon didn't encourage them to worship at the ark like David did. In fact, Solomon also violated God's command, and he used the high places, verse 3. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only, this is the one exception, he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. Now, when it says here that Solomon loved the Lord, this is not the word uh, hesed. It's not the, the word that refers to God's loyal love for us. Uh, hesed is like the Old Testament equivalent of agape in the New Testament. This love here, this word, it means to have an affection for someone based on a close relationship with them. It has much more in common with another word the New Testament uses for love, phileo, right? The idea of that brother love, the close relationship that you might have with someone. So that's not a negative here. It's just explaining that Solomon had a lot of affection for the Lord. He had a close relationship with the Lord early on. He loved Him. And as a result, he walked in the statutes of of David his father. He did things the way that David did for the most part, but there's one thing that was unique and distinct. He worshiped at the high places. David didn't do that. Remember David, when he was on the run from Saul, that Saul killed all the priests. And so what did Abiathar, the one of the surviving priests, do? He brought the Urim and the Thummim with him. And so David, the whole time that he's not the king, he's got the high priest with him, who's, he, he's consulting the Lord, which, what do you want us to do, Lord? Do you want us to go up and then consult the Urim and Thummim? Yes or no. David, his whole life had been this close to the, to the priest. It had been very close to the way worship was supposed to be. And so when he became king, he said, we're going to do this the right way. But Solomon, he really didn't kind of catch with him. This is the one area that it mentions here that he he really didn't do things the way David did. And so we see here that Solomon, in his early reign, he loved the Lord, but he had these two areas of compromise. He had these extra marriages that God said not to do, and he worshiped in places that God said you're not supposed to worship. 
So they are, they do kind of stand out. The word here only, it actually means it speaks of something that's unique and distinctive. So these two parts of Solomon's life, people look at him, man, he loves the Lord. But these two little things would be like, this makes no sense. Those actions were in stark contrast to the rest of Solomon's life. He was loyal to the Lord in every other way, just like David. And so while that doesn't excuse those areas of compromise, it does show how close his relationship was with the Lord at the start, that there was nothing else that he compromised in. And so while Solomon is not worshiping the Lord correctly, God still meets him there, verse 4. And here's where we get to the main bulk of this chapter. Verse 4 says, And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. And in Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. The high place in Gibeon, it describes here as the great high place. This is the place most people came to worship. After Saul killed a bunch of the priests at Nob, he set up the tattered remains of the tabernacle here in Gibeon, his hometown. This made the tabernacle here the prime destination for worship again, even though everybody didn't come here. And I could see how Solomon might justify making offerings there because, well, that's where the tabernacle is. But the high priest wasn't there, and the ark wasn't there. And that hill had been associated with pagan worship ideas. It kind of like be going to, when you're, if you were going to a church that had wonky doctrine, but the people genuinely love the Lord. Like, I have been in places like that where people are like, what was it like? And I'm like, well, I wouldn't go there, but the people really seem to genuinely love the Lord. That's kind of what this is like. Everybody up at Gibeon, they're like, this is great. And if somebody's going, yeah, but this is not the word. But they really genuinely love the Lord. They're just kind of wonky. Now, it doesn't tell us the significance of the occasion for such a massive offering, a thousand burnt offerings. But we know from Scripture that the burnt offering symbolized surrender. And so Solomon, for whatever reason, is communicating his surrender to the Lord. And the Lord replies to Solomon's surrender through a dream. And he says to him, ask what I shall give you. It's almost like the Lord says, Solomon, you've offered me something great, but I offer you something greater. Ask whatever you want from me. Now, if you're wondering how to get one of those dreams, the Bible seems to say the cost is a thousand burnt offerings. That's the equivalent of about $4.8 million. Tom will be taking checks after the service for anyone who's interested in acquiring this dream. Just kidding. Dreams are always interesting when you read them in the Bible because, like, you read it and you think, you know, you think, oh, wow, that's cool. But dreams aren't really that frequent. They tend to stand out because most of the dreams are kind of like this, like, wow. Like, I've never had a dream like that. You know, you kind of go to bed or not, you're like, okay, I'm going for the Solomon dream. Definitely don't want to relive my eighth grade memories. But we don't usually experience that. And yet here's Solomon, you know, he's sleeping, and the Lord's like, blank check, buddy. What do you want? So it stands out to us. God usually doesn't speak to us in dreams. In fact, There are only about a dozen accounts of people getting dreams from God in the Bible. And since the Bible spans at least 4,000 years, that's only one dream every 300 years. So I'm not saying God won't speak to you in a dream. I'm just saying if you want to hear from the Lord, He's already spoken quite a bit. 
So there's plenty for us to consume. We don't need unique dreams outside of what the Bible has to say to hear from God. Well, how does Solomon respond to a blank check from God? Well, I think he responds very different than the majority of humanity would normally respond. Look at verse 6. Solomon said, You have showed unto your servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before you in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. And you have kept for him this great kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. Solomon, first off, his response is to declare God's faithfulness in verse 6. He says here, Lord, you have showed unto your servant David, my father, great mercy. And this is that word chesed. He says, you have shown a massive amount of loyal love to my father. And then he explains, he goes, you loved my dad loyally, and, and my dad loved you loyally as well. He says, according as, which means you acted in loyal love towards David, just as David acted in loyal love toward you. My father loved you. He says he, he walked before you in truth, which means in faithfulness and reliability. He walked before you in righteousness, which means he, he obeyed your requirements. And he walked before you, he says, in uprightness of heart, which means sincerity. I don't think Solomon's claiming here that David was just as faithful as God, because we know that's not true. But I think what he's saying is, you and my dad had a close, genuine relationship as evidenced by both of your actions. You never failed my dad, and my dad was sincere and faithful, and generally he did what you said. He obeyed you. And now, Lord, he says, you've also been faithful to him in that you kept for him this great kindness. Even after David's gone, you've been loyal to my dad by putting me on the throne just like you promised him as it is this day. Do you know that God keeps his promises? That is never in doubt. I think the thing we always have to probably question is, am I reliable, obedient, and sincere on my side of the relationship? That's probably the challenge here. It's not, does God keep his promises? I had a friend at Bible college. His name was Gordy. He went home to be with the Lord a few years ago, and Gordy was a quadriplegic and I thought one day, and I've probably told this story a thousand times, so bear with me. But I, was, I saw Gordy sitting by himself over at the table, and I thought, I'm going to go sit with Gordy. I'm going to go encourage him. He's got a rough life. I'm going to go encourage him. And I sat down. We were eating. We started talking. And, and I don't know how I got about to whining about all the stuff going on in my life. I said these words. I said, you know, sometimes it's just hard to trust God. And Gordy put his fork down. And everything's real pronounced with him. His speech is real pronounced. And he goes, no, it's not. And I thought, I don't want to get in an argument with Gordy, whatever. Well, sometimes it is hard to trust God, though, Gordy. And he goes, no, it's not. And then he proceeded to explain to me, he goes, I can't get out of my own bed every day. I have to trust that someone's going to come get me, put me in my chair, take me to get food, put food on my plate. He goes, I have to trust the Lord every single day. And guess what? Every single day the Lord comes through for me. I was so humbled after that conversation because what he reminded me was, he, he said, Will, he said, God never, has never failed you. 
Why would it be hard to trust him? I mean, you could list any other person and say it's hard to trust them, and I go, okay, that makes sense. But the Lord? He's the only person in your life that's never failed you. Changed my whole thinking. God's keeping His promises is something that's never in doubt. The question is, am I like David? Am I reliable, obedient, and sincere as it concerns my side of the relationship? I think that's what Solomon's pondering here as he thinks about how to answer the question. I think he realizes, I'm not my dad, but his responsibilities are now mine. And I think what he's seeing is, I don't have the experience my dad had. And this means I can't get the job done right. And so Solomon confesses in verse 7, and now, O Lord, my God, we have a relationship too, but it's not like David's yet. I'm missing something that David had. He says, I am just a little child. Now, Solomon's not a little child. He's between the age of 20 and 25 at this point. But could you imagine being king of Israel at the age of 20 to 25? Could you imagine being president between the age of 20 and 25 without all the experience and wisdom you have now? I can't fathom. Like, I definitely, like if they, my son the other day said, Dad, he goes, you think they're ever going to invent the time machine? He goes, how are they doing on the research? And I said, I don't think anyone's really seriously researching this. I said, it's just not doable. But I told him, I said, but if they ever figure it out, I want in. Because I need to have some conversations with 20-year-old me, and we need to sit down and have a chat and be like, bro, (laughs) chill out. Like, relax. Like, life's going to be good. Just trust the Lord and do what He says. You'll be fine. Because when I was young, I didn't. Not as much. David's position in the army and Saul's court, as well as all the trials he experienced between the age of 15 to 30, prepared him to be a good king. Solomon might have been trained by David and even maybe acquired some court experience, but he had nowhere near the experience David had with adversity, with unfairness. He was like a little boy in comparison. He says, I don't even know how to go out or come in. I don't have the experience to do the job correctly, even the most basic things. And while lacking experience might not be the worst problem when you're fresh out of school and in your first career position, it is a big deal when your job is leading a nation. And so Solomon says, he goes, it's not just that I don't know how to do my job like my dad did. He says in verse 8, he goes, the job is huge. He says, your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. These are not my people that I get to just practice with. I have six kids. And every once in a while, my uh, my oldest, Joel, he'll make a comment. He goes, you would have never let me get away with that. And I said, yes, you were the guinea pig. Right? Because, I mean, every time is a first thing, right? Everything's a first thing. The walk-ins, the first time you've had a kid walk. The kid going to sleep over at somebody's house, it's the first time. And so you're texting every hour, doing okay? Do you need me to come get him? Now it's like, where's so-and-so? I don't know. (laughs) It's not my first rodeo. They come back eventually. (laughs) He's like, these aren't my people just to be, I can't afford to have them be a guinea pig. 
It's so one thing to be humble about your need for the Lord to do something. It's another to recognize the seriousness and the scope of the task that God's given you. And Solomon's thinking to himself here, he's like, Lord, this is a huge task. If you're a, a husband tonight or a parent or an employer or a, a ministry leader, there needs to be a reality check when it concerns your God-given responsibilities. That's his daughter that you're leading in marriage. Those are his kids you're parenting, not yours. Those are his creations you've hired. And those are his sheep that you're serving, not yours. And so I ask you tonight, have you considered the seriousness and the scope of the task that God's given to you if you fall into one of those leadership categories? And are you asking for wisdom like Solomon does next in verse 9? Here's his request finally. This is, he explains why he comes to this, and now he brings it out. Therefore, in light of everything I just said, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this? You're so great a people. I love this phrase, an understanding heart. It means literally a hearing heart. Give to your servant a hearing heart. God, I need to hear your voice because I don't know what to do. I was reading in, I think it's Second Chronicles, about Jehoshaphat. And when he was king, he phrased it a little bit differently, but he said something very similar. Where is it? Here it is. It's in Second Chronicles 20, and he says this. Here he says, O oh God, and they're being invaded by a bunch of countries allied against him. He says, O oh God, will you not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that comes against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Isn't that a cool way to put that? That's Second Chronicles 20, 12. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You know what to do. I tell you, there have been times, especially with my kids, because there are times you come into a situation and there's no manual on this. I mean, there's a manual, you got a principle, but you don't have like specific instructions about how to converse with a child about this particular challenge they're facing. And I have come to, you know, to the end of myself. And I go, Lord, I don't know what to do. But my eyes are on you. You know what to do. And Lord, you can reach them or I cannot. You have answers I could never fathom. So God, my eyes are on you. You do something. In this case, though, he's saying, I need a hearing heart. I want to hear your voice so I can know what to do. He explains here, he says, so I can discern between the good and the bad, judge between the good and the bad. Uh, the phrase here where he says, verse 9, to judge your people that I may discern between good and bad. He was, I, the word judge there means to make decisions, to lead. I want to lead your people right so I can know when it's a bad decision or when it's a good decision. I want to know when what the beneficial direction I'm supposed to go is, the not beneficial direction is to stay away from. Solomon wants to leave his people not in a worse state because of the decisions he made, but in a better state. And he knows the only way that he will accomplish that is if he's hearing from the Lord about what to do. And I cannot think of a better 
thing to ask God for if He's given you the role of leading others in some way. I can't think of anything better than to say, God, give me a hearing heart so I can hear your voice. Have you asked God for a hearing heart? If not, tonight would be a great night to do so because God gives to all men liberally when they ask. I love what J. Vernon McGee said about leaders here. He said, in the sickening scene of government today, we see a group of men clamoring for positions. All of them are telling us how great they are and what marvelous abilities they have. They assure us that they are able to solve the problems. Well, by now, friends, some of us have come to the conclusion that these boys are just kidding us. They don't have the solutions and they don't have the wisdom. If only some men would come onto the scene and say, I don't have the wisdom, I recognize my inadequacies, but I am going to depend on God to lead and guide me. Sign me up for that campaign. J. Vernon McGee said that in 1982. I believe God would be pleased with someone who wants to lead with that mindset, just as Solomon's response pleases him here. Look at verse 10. And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, because you have asked this thing, and have not asked for yourself long life, neither have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern judgment, a hearing heart to make good decisions. Behold, he says, I have done according to your words. Lo, I have given you a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like you before you, neither after you shall any arise like unto you. Solomon, you asked to hear well enough to make good decisions. Well, now you have it. Now you have it. I don't know if you've struggled with this, but have you ever had the thoughts where you wonder if your prayers even matter? Like if, it, if it's just kind of words going off into the ether somewhere? What good am I doing saying words to the wind? Where you're doing a lot of good because you're not saying words to the wind. You're speaking to the living God, to the almighty, all-loving, all-wise creator of the universe. Now, there is a sadness to this awesome blessing that Solomon receives because we know Solomon didn't act upon this gift later in life, right? Like we know he didn't make decisions with this wisdom that God gave him. He didn't listen to the voice of God. He had the capacity to do so, but he chose his own way instead. And it led the nation of Israel to be in a worse place than when he started. There is a truth there. You and I can genuinely have affection for God and even have amazing gifting from God, but toleration of sin and compromise in my life will squelch both of them out eventually. Do not miss out on what God has for you because there's something you just refuse to remove from your life. Now, if this was all God did for Solomon, end of story, end of chapter, that would have been amazing. But God gives Solomon much more than he asked for. Look at verse 13. And... 
I have also given you that which you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto you all of your days. And I'll give you one more thing, but this one's conditional. If you, walk, if you will walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments, as your father David did walk, then I will lengthen your days. So God gives Solomon two unconditional promises and then a third conditional blessing. Two unconditional blessings and a third unconditional blessing. So four things total. A hearing heart. He says, I'm going to give you riches and then I'm going to give you honor. All of those were unconditional. Solomon had all of those to the end of his days. Riches, I don't need to explain. Honor just means a high status in society. And Solomon had that. There was no king in that region that could rival Solomon's wealth and status during his lifetime. Not even close. God did exactly what he told Solomon he would do. But the fourth blessing is conditional. If you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments, I will give you long life as well. Solomon did not meet those conditions, and he died at the age of 60. Now, I'm not saying 60 is not a long life, but when you contrast it with David, David's beat-up body lasted over 70 years. Solomon lived an easy, cushy life, and he died at 60. I don't know about you, but I do not want to miss out on what God offers me. Not for anything this life might offer me. So when the enemy tempts you with something that seems so irresistible and so wonderful, remember that by giving in, you are trading away something else that is far more valuable. Now, Solomon is not at that point in his life yet. He's in a good spot. And so when he wakes up, he decides to deal with one of his two areas of compromise. Look at verse 15. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And so he came to Jerusalem, and he stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and offered up burnt offerings, and offered peace offerings, and made a feast to all his servants. Guys, obedience and repentance are the proper responses to God's blessings. And he does immediately. He's like, yeah, I'm done with this place. I'm going to go where I'm supposed to be, which is where the ark is, where the high priest is, where the presence of the Lord is. I'm going to go respond to God with these offerings the right way. And so he leaves the high place, goes to Jerusalem, and he brings these offerings there. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says, or do you despise the riches of his kindness that leads you to repentance? God was being so good to Solomon to draw his heart away. Solomon, you don't need alliances with other people. Solomon, you don't need to come to the great high place. You don't need any of this. All you need is to walk with me, and I'll take care of the rest. And that drew Solomon to that place of repentance where he said, Lord, I come. (laughs) I come. I wish he would have stayed there. He threw a great feast here, so in addition to getting worship right, Solomon celebrates God's goodness to him, which is also a proper response to God's blessings. Now, Solomon's response here shows that he assumes what God promised happened. But no one else is going to know this. It's a private dream. I mean, Solomon could claim whatever he wanted, but there's no proof until a particularly interesting event proves it to the entire nation. So look at verse 16. We'll read this to the end of the chapter, and it shares an interesting event <laughs> that proves that God did this to Solomon. 
Well, verse 16, it says, then, we don't know how long afterwards, I would assume it's not too long though, then there came two women that were harlots unto the king, and they stood before him. Now, harlots coming before the king is probably a pretty rare occurrence in Israel. In Israel, if a priest's daughter became a prostitute, it was a capital crime. If a woman or man was caught in the act of sex while betrothed or married to someone else, that was also a capital crime. Sacred prostitution, in other words, you're not just a common prostitute, it's associated with worship in some way, which is extremely common with prostitution back then. Sacred prostitution of any kind was also a capital crime in Israel. But common prostitution was not a capital crime. That's not to say God was okay with common prostitution. Nor did Israeli society generally look favorably on it. According to God's law, if a woman was caught in the act of sex when she wasn't engaged or married, then the man had to marry her. To not marry her was to treat an Israelite girl like a prostitute, and that was considered a heavy cultural offense. Uh, Usually it would provoke a blood feud between those two families. So, with all that discouragement there, when a woman chose to become a prostitute, it was considered a shameful profession. And those women occupied the lowest rung in Israeli society. One step below shepherds, which isn't saying a lot. So these two women who are engaged in this low profession of of prostitution, low esteem in society, it says they came to the king and stood before him, which means to stand before a superior for evaluation. In other words, we've got a case that that we want the king to settle. I do find it interesting that even though Israel had an intricate judicial system, anyone, anyone, even the lowest member of society could appeal directly to the king for justice. And while I don't have time tonight, there's an application there if you're willing to see it. So what are they asking Solomon to evaluate? Verse 17, and the one woman said, O my Lord, I and this woman dwell in one house, and I was delivered of a child with her in the house. And it came to pass the third day after that I was delivered, that this woman was delivered also, and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house except we two in the house. And this woman's child died in the night because she overlaid it. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your handmaid slept and laid it in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to give my child suck to nurse the child, behold, it was dead. But when I had considered it in the morning, behold, it was not my son, which I did bear. Now, she states her case, verse 22, the other woman said, no, but the living is my son and the dead is your son. And this said, no, but the dead is your son, and the living is my son. So you've got this dispute. You've got this one woman who's saying, this is what happened. And of course, she doesn't know it entirely because she was sleeping when it happened. But she says, this is what happened. And the other woman says, no, that's not how it happened. That's my kid. So you've got two disputes going on here. One is the charge of kidnapping. And then the second is the charge of lying about it. Now, Lying is not a capital crime, but kidnapping is. Kidnapping is a capital crime in Israel. And so the accusation is that the other woman smothered her own baby while sleeping, then kidnapped hers in the middle of the night by swapping them out. Now, this is a horribly sad story on every front. It's sad for the guilty woman who mistakenly killed her child, and it's sad because of how she then compounded the problem by stealing someone else's child and bringing grief to them too. 
I encourage you, do not compound one mistake by trying to fix it through disobedience. I said it this morning, two negatives never result in a positive when it concerns… I know math works that way, but conduct does not work that way. Two negatives never result in a positive when it concerns our conduct, and that is true even when you think you got away with it. But this is also sad because based on Israeli law, this is pretty much an impossible case. Deuteronomy 17.6 says, when it concerns capital crimes, no one can be put to death unless there are at least two or three witnesses. And so this is pretty much an impossible case because kidnapping is a capital crime. So she can't be declared guilty if she disagrees with the only witness that's there, which she does. So what in the world is Solomon to do? Maybe you found yourself in a conundrum like this. I know I have. I've had times when I've had two people, usually a couple, sitting in front of me or family doing some counseling and sitting in front of me, and I'm thinking to myself, I have no clue what to say, Lord. I have no clue how to help them. What's the solution? How does one even arrive at a good solution in this scenario? My very first pastor used to say, shoot them both and let God sort it out, but I don't think that's justice. (laughs) Hang them both and let the Lord deal with it. Well, Solomon asked God for a hearing heart, didn't he? So he could lead well. And his response shows that God did what God said he would do. Look at verse 23. Then said the king, the one says, this is my son that lives, and your son is, your son is the dead. And the other says, no, but your son is the dead, and my son is the living. And the king said, bring me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Solomon's solution is absolutely brilliant. It is brilliant. I know I would not have figured this. Like, I would have tried to logic my way through the evidence. Like, I would have been like, tell me again how you know she did this. Tell me again, you know, all the features about your kid. And I'd listen and try to catch her in something. Tell me again about how many times your son wiggled his ears last night. I know that's how I probably would have approached this. I'd probably try to logic my way through this and try to find somehow where the pieces either don't fit or where they do fit and go, aha! And yet Solomon just hears an answer from the Lord. And he takes a course of action that will give him the only evidence that he needs. Because the true mother would never want harm to come to the child even if keeping the child safe broke her own heart. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 26, then spoke the woman whose the living child was unto the king, for her bowels yearned upon her son and said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and in no wise slay it. But the other said, let it neither be mine nor yours, but divide it. And then the king answered and said, give her the living child and in no wise slay it. She is its mother. She's the mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. The result is that everyone now knew what Solomon claimed. God kept his word. The word feared there means they reverenced him, they respected him. Could you imagine a society where no one thinks they can talk their way through something or legal jargon their way out of the evil they've done? 
Well, that's what Solomon prayed for, wasn't it? A hearing heart to make his nation better. And that's exactly what happened. Some people don't like it when I give them this advice as parents. But Beverly and I have often prayed that God would expose our kids when they're doing wrong immediately. God, don't let them get away with anything. Bust them. God, if they're away from us, have someone else see it. Have someone else find out about it. Bust them right away, God, and let us somehow find out. And you know, our kids over the years have learned that God sees their behavior, and somehow He usually lets us know about it. It's always funny when you have… It happens more when they're little, of course, but you have that conversation, how did you know? My mom always used to say, a bird told me. But I tell them, I say, I'm your parent. And God loves you enough, that, and I pray for you that He'll bust you every time. And God loves you enough that He does, that He gives you a short leash. And so God lets me know somehow. There'll be times when I don't have a clue, but I just know something's up. And I just start praying, God, whatever it is they're doing or whatever's going on, I don't know, let it come to light. And lo and behold, something eventually comes up. They get busted. I will say that that concept keeps the peace better in our house than anything me and her can do. Well, if it seems like the enemy is wrecking havoc in your marriage or your family or your work environment or your ministry, I strongly recommend asking God for a hearing heart. Because if if the reason you're asking so that your marriage or your family or your workplace or your ministry will be more beneficial to the people in it, I'm convinced God will answer that prayer with a yes, that He'll give you a hearing heart so that you can make good decisions and stay away from bad decisions. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, you have given to us many gifts and different gifts, of course, but this evening, Lord, we ask for a hearing heart. Lord, we know how to minister to our spouse, to our kids, to our co-workers, and certainly, Lord, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to have a heart that hears Your voice, that doesn't have the quick answer, or doesn't have the quick response, but instead, that as we're just waiting on You and loving that person, that You would speak something to us that will show us what to do. Lord, help us to like Jehoshaphat, have regularly in our hearts the mindset that says, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Help us to have that same mindset. Lord, not just tonight when things are spiritual and and we've kind of set aside time to hear from you, but all throughout the week, that that mindset would be, Lord, my eyes are on you. I want to hear from you. I need a hearing heart. I don't want to make bad decisions. I want to make good ones. And Lord, I pray that for anyone who's asking that tonight, that you would answer that prayer with a yes that you give them the wisdom they need to lead well in whatever area you've given them responsibility. I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.